Welcome to Service Unplugged, the WSU podcast that explores service at the university, but also the service leader and the person beyond the job title. We'll delve into who they are, as well as their efforts to cultivate a healthy work culture, prioritise service excellence and recognise staff achievements within their respective service areas. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record, the Baramatical people of the Darug Nation, and pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend our respect to all Indigenous people, colleagues, staff and students who are listening to this episode today. And now joining you are your hosts, Nicole and Nicole, half of the Service Reimagined team. Together, they will help tell the stories, innovative solutions and transformative ideas that shape the service areas of the university. Get ready to unplug and discover a new dimension of service. This is Service Unplugged. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome everybody to our um, next episode of the podcast. We have a very special guest today with us. We have Natalie Bradbury, who is the Director of Student Retention and Success. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Sadly, it's just one Nicole here today, Natalie. Nicole Mancini, lucky her, is in Japan having a well-earned break. We have Elise with us on the microphone. Yes, hello. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, very much thank you for your time today. Um, You've you've listened to a a few of our podcasts now. So, Elise is going to start with... Nicole Mancini's icebreaker. Um, Okay. If you could choose any historical or celebrity figure as a teammate, who would you choose? Wow, that's a big question. Mm. Um, Look, I'm going to go with someone that I saw speak recently who's a pretty inspirational person, Um, Jacinda Ardern. Ah. Uh, So, yeah, um, well, I'm sure it'll come out. I've been pretty active in politics in my life and so that's been um, something that I follow quite closely and uh, I think she has just been someone who is a very authentic leader so I think take the politics away Um, just her leadership style I think is is wonderful she's a very humble person Um, and yeah just seeing her recently um, you know her biggest takeaways from her time in office were that you know, the best leaders often doubt themselves mm. and, you know, don't worry about that. You just need to believe that you can do it and you can do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think sh- that sort of energy, that that's energy that I would vibe with. So um, I think she'd be great. She's a great leader. So where did you see her? Uh, we took some of the team, actually, to oh. a um, – it was a business chicks event um, in the city, oh. um, so she was out speaking at that, and uh, so we took a group of our female leaders mm-hmm. um, as yeah part of the kind of culture work that we've been doing. We've been working on leadership within our leadership group, so we thought that would be a good opportunity for us. So we left very early one morning and went into a, a breakfast to hear her speak, but it was a fantastic uh, opportunity. Yeah, beautiful. She would make a great teammate, I think. All right, well, let's get down to our um, normal questions. But as you know, we'll just see how this flows sure. and who knows where it may take us. So um, let's talk about you, Natalie, and where were you born? Where did you grow up? So I was born in Fairfield. So yeah, right. I am um, Western Sydney girl. Westie, Westie tr- through and through. Um, so born in Fairfield, um, grew up there, went to school in Marylands. Um, I'm one of five. Um, I am, um, yeah, sort of um, really um, second generation Australian in the sense that my mother was born in Malta, which not a lot of people know about me. Um, So she was one of ten and came to Australia when she was four. Um, So yeah, so we grew up um, pretty working class family in Western Sydney. Mum and Dad had never been to university, um, but uh, the value of education was very much instilled in us and we were all very much... Uh, encouraged to work hard and to kind of we were given lots of opportunities and mum and dad worked really hard to make sure we had those so yeah I've always really had uh, valued education very highly mm. and uh, yeah and um, four siblings five of you yeah yeah that's yeah. is that fun 
Yeah, lots of fun. Lots of fun. I think I think it's sort of something we miss these days. There's not a lot of big families. You know, I've got two um, and I think you do miss that, just the rough and tumble around the dinner table and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there were four of us that were very close and then, um, you know, mum sort of had a later in life baby. I was 18 when my youngest brother oh, was wow. born and... Um, so that was really lovely as well. And, uh, yeah, we still have a really lovely bond. So, yeah, I love a big family. So if your mum was one of ten, do you have a million cousins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've actually lost count, but I think it's something like 36 cousins and now something like my like my grandparents who have passed but would have had 54 <laughs> or great-grandchildren or something like that. Wow, it's that's, massive. That's a big family lunch. Yeah. And look, you know, still all, with the exception of one of my brothers who's at the moment living overseas, all still living in Western Sydney. Wow. So, yeah. So you get to catch up. Catch up, you know, not as often as we used to, unfortunately, but um, actually that's a good reminder. Um, (laughs) One of the things I, one of of my cousins and I agreed to do at a recent wedding was to organise an annual family picnic. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's actually on my list of things to do before the end of the year. Isn't it funny? I've got two cousins, small family, yeah, two well. cousins, and exactly the same thing. When we do catch up, we have a lot of fun, um, and but we don't do it enough. And we just made, you know, we've got to do this regularly. We've got to make it an annual thing, or you know. So yeah, it's interesting. They're so close, but you just you don't. It, life is busy. It is busy. Hmm. So Fairfield, I was born in Bankstown. That's pretty close. Um, and you went to school in Maryland's. I did. What about after school? So after school, I had an interesting journey. I did pretty well in the HSC, but um, I didn't get into the course that I wanted to do. Um, one of the, It's a funny story I tell, but, you know, I had my heart set on going to Sydney University. Uh-huh. And again, so no one in the family had been. And um, every time we drove into the city up Parramatta Road, Dad would kind of go, there it is on the, you know, (laughs) Sydney University, that's where you'll all go. And funnily enough, I think three of the five of us did end up there. Um, So uh, I didn't get into, I wanted to do law, I didn't get into that. Um, So I went and did arts. But I found Sydney a difficult environment. Mm. It was, for me, there were not people that I knew or people from school. Um, I got involved in campus life, so I did get involved in clubs. Um, and I did an arts degree. So yep. I was doing sort of um, history and philosophy uh, and English. Um, so I enjoyed it, but I just wasn't loving it. Yeah. Um, so I applied for a transfer at the end of my first year, went to Macquarie and ah. uh, started doing arts law there, but then got very involved in campus life. Um, so I was the secretary of the debating society <laughs> and involved in um, young labour. Um, and that became very distracting and uh, ah. so, yeah, I was sort of two years into that there and then uh, took a break. I got a job. I got offered a job in a trade union and, uh, yeah, went on to have a 16-year career in trade unions. Oh, So, right. um, yeah, and didn't get back to my degree actually until almost 10 years later. I uh, sort of went back and literally had two subjects left to oh. finish the arts degree. Yeah. And uh, went back and finished that and, uh, yeah, couple of years later went back and I've now done two other masters so yes. yes did you do a master's in public administration at UCIP yeah, yeah. master's in public policy yeah yeah right yeah uh, was that at the graduate school of government uh it was yep bingo there's our yeah common. there's our connection yes <laughs> I did um, the, the MPA there yeah. it was I mean it was good for the masters I think that was you know working full-time as well I don't know if you were as well, but it's... I yeah. was, I was. Mm. Um, trying to think back to the timing now, but I'm pretty sure I had my daughter at the time. So, yeah, working full-time with a young yeah, toddler. Yes. So, yeah, it was challenging, but it was a, that was a great... I enjoyed that program a lot. Yeah, right. Yeah, same. I did too. Um, yeah, yours was 2005 to 2008, actually. Yeah, there you go. Research. And then you've got a um, another master's in management. Correct. That? Right. Yeah. Yep. So I um I did that one at Western, uh, mm. and uh, I did get a like a post uh, a vice chancellor's uh, postgraduate scholarship to do an MBA. Yep. And uh, so I was doing the MBA, but yeah, that was tough. My kids were a little bit older then, and I was um, single by that stage. I was I was divorced, so um, it was just challenging fitting mm. classes in with full time work. 
I would, um, you know, the business school runs in quarters um, and I would be only able to manage one subject a quarter mm-hmm. and I'd be kind of, you know, looking at the timetable as it would be released to try and find the classes that would run on a Friday night because, you know, that would mean the minimal disruption to my kids mm. because every second Friday they'd be with their dad and I wouldn't have to find care for them. So that was really challenging and... Uh, after a couple of years of that, um, you know, I enjoyed it, but it was just taking a long, long time. Yeah. So um, I ended up checking out with a Masters of Management, um, yep. which was a good sort of early exit op- option for me. Well, I'll take my hat off to you, um, you know, juggling everything. The work-life balance is always interesting. Is it is it better for you now? It is better, I think. Um, the kids are a bit older, so my daughter's just about to do the HSC uh, and my son's in year nine. So um, her getting her licence earlier this year was a bit of a game changer as people <laughs> with teenage kids will appreciate. So that took a bit of pressure off. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're much more um, self-sufficient now. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah. But, and I think also uh, just post-COVID, I think, you know, mm. we have a little bit more balance, you know, in terms of, um, you know, being able to work from home occasionally, which just, just helps you with that juggle, I think. Mm. So working in a union mm. is interesting and your, and your interest in politics too. Did you, did you also work in the public sector at any point? No, no, not in the mm. public sector. So I went straight into the union and it was in the health sector. So I was mm. representing health workers, um, ambulance officers and uh, aged care workers. Um, right. So, yeah, so that was that was really um, fantastic. I enjoyed that a lot, um, really working with some great people. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, um, some good achievements. I mean, I, I'm, I, I kind of... You know, I'm the sort of person that I think I'm very values-driven and mission-driven, and so that's why Western. I was drawn to mm. Western as well. But um, for me, I mean, I don't think I would ever be interested in working in a big corporate or anything like that. You know, the public sector certainly is a possibility, but yeah, I like to work somewhere where I feel like I'm kind of making a, an impact mm. and a contribution. Yeah. And so, did you want to be a lawyer? Is that what you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, it's like. I'm watching with my daughter now and, you know, that decision-making process when you're 17, it's quite interesting, right? Yeah. Um, and I think I was kind of in the space of also, you know, and we see it we see it with students coming in where they're kind of, um, they're just trying to get maximum value out of their ATAR, you know? Mm. So it was kind of, it was the prestige program, right? It was kind of the thing that you did. And I, I didn't do sciences, I was all humanities-based. So, it was, you know, it's not like medicine or one of the sort of health sciences was really going to be an option. So um, I think that's why it appealed. But also I guess I had an interest in politics, in social mm. justice, in those sorts of things. Debating. And I could, yeah, debating, you know, public speaking, did all those things at school. So I think that's kind of what drew me to it. I could sort of see a, a place for myself there. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things which kind of niggles at the back of your mind. Oh, I sort of think maybe I should go back and do that still. Ah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very young to have to decide oh, when, what you want to do. So I don't think young. we've interviewed anyone who's done what they said yeah. they were going to when they left school. How are you meant to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life at yeah. 17? Is your daughter knowing what she wants to do? She's pretty good. She she wants to do commerce or law. Um, mm. So And she's uh, she's worked very hard and she's in uh, a great position now of, of having a couple of early offers. So mm. she's kind of going into the... Exams with the you know yeah my daughter had that security mm-hmm. of knowing that she's got you know a couple of really good offers um, including one to Western um, so yeah so that's good so uh, look I think for her it's just a case of now get through the exams and then make a decision and you know I think my best advice to kids these days is you know just do like do what you love like mm. you know really if you love the humanities that's what you should be looking to do if you love maths or science then that's what you should be doing and you know it will kind of flow from there but you know I think they have to be a bit more careful and prudent these days as well you know when we went you know degrees still cost money back mm. in the day and you had to defer it but they weren't as expensive mm. and you know you could afford to spend a bit of time finding your feet whereas now I think there is a bit more pressure to kind of find your feet within that first sort yeah. of six to 12 months and make sure you're on a path which is going to work out for you. So I think that's just, you know, don't don't be afraid to course correct, you know, and mm. often if you start, um, you know, subjects that you do, will you'll often be able to get credit if you change programs. But, 
you know, don't be afraid to talk to people. I think that's part of the problem. We hear students say it, you know, they don't want to ask questions because they think they should know, you know. There's an mm. expectation that you're at university, you should know, you know, should know how these things work and you should know. Um, but they don't know and, yeah. you know, there's, there's no expectation that they do. So ask the questions, you know, understand what your options are. You know, that early exit, you know, when I was sort of struggling through the MBA, you know, I mean, I had the benefit of that was my third degree and working in a university. So I knew who to go to and who to ask. And, um, you know, but but I think, yeah, that's that's my biggest advice. Mm, just um, options. Yeah. 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 My daughter's just started Western this year at uh, Criminology and Community Justice. So, yeah, she's in second semester. So that was a journey. But she did all the humanities and stuff. And that's always what she wanted to do. My son is now in year 11 and having, I think the decision around um, futures even starts when you're picking your year 11 and 12 subjects. It does. And you have to look up uni courses and see if there's prerequisites and all sorts of stuff. It just seems, yeah, very different to when we went through. Mm. Um, But yeah, I have no no idea where my son will end up. (laughs) He goes from idea to idea to idea that are very different. So we'll we'll see. Uh, Okay. Now tell us about um, a little bit more about who you are when you go home. So you're a mum. You're still in Western Sydney? I am, yep. Um, And, yeah, what else do you do? Do you have hobbies? Uh, I do. I guess I'm a soccer mum. Have been for a few years. Um, So... Uh, again, I guess in terms of, you know, um, my view on service, I think kind of came from my parents who, again, both worked very hard, but were always kind of active in our schools and in our sports and stuff like that. So I've always kind of taken that on board. So uh, the kids played cricket when they were younger and I somehow ended up being the president of the local cricket club. <laughs> um and then, you know, I've always kind of taken on the job of managing their teams and stuff like that. So I'm currently the manager of the, you know, under 15 Division 1 boys team. And uh, and I love that. And I just love, you know, um, yeah, just watching them just enjoy, you know, their sport and enjoy each other and learn and develop. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. that's that's a big part of what I do. We, we love to watch sport together. So I'm also... Um, Parramatta Reels fan and <laughs> a bit of a cricket nut. Um, so, yeah, so we spend a lot of time um, going to sport. We, you know, follow the Wanderers as well. So, yeah, that's kind of um, as much as I love to go to the theatre or, you know, things like that, that's kind of not their vibe as 17 yeah. and 15-year-olds, <laughs> although I did drag them to um, the Bell Shakespeare production of Romeo and Juliet the other day. So you've got to have balance. But, <laughs> yeah, you'll often see us at Combank, you know, watching the – eels ah. or the the wanderers so that's sort of our family thing that we do together where we spend time together my husband's an eels fan he um was shattered last year oh, in the grand final hearts forever. <laughs> <laughs> well you know i'm a dragons fan so you, you yeah i don't even <laughs> i can't even talk about it um yeah no sport is a, you know, important i think in in your kids in your kids lifestyle all of mine play sport from f- four up to 19 so you know big part of big part of kids life these days particularly in Australia now the weather's heating up little athletics has started (laughs) um okay what what about secret talents Nat uh we've had a couple of jugglers on the program I can't (laughs) juggle I mean it's I can I can score in cricket which oh, yeah, that's complex. It is a bit complex. I mean, it's a bit easier now because I think they do it in an app, I think, you know. But, I mean, oh. when I used to score for cricket, I used to have the big, you know, yes. scorebook and the board and my lead pencils. And so I know all the symbols for a wide and a no ball and, you yes. know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I can score for cricket. That's kind of one of my <laughs> I shied away from the big board, skills. I must admit. <laughs> it scared me. Are you? Do you go and watch the Big Bash or anything? Yeah. When it's on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, isn't it? Yeah, I do. We and I was um sort of on I was a community rep on the Sydney Thunder um uh yeah, board for a little while. So yeah, I'm really engaged with sport and I love cricket. Um but yeah. So yeah. I I, yeah, I like cricket. We were looking up tickets to the test in Sydney. Um in January the other day. We went this year, but it was a rained out day. Oh. But it was still enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully better weather next year. Mm. Yeah, I love my cricket too. Okay, so what is something, a 
apart from cricket scoring, that not many people would know about you? Um, I already mentioned the Maltese heritage, mm. um, which people are generally surprised about. Um, yeah, I don't know what else. Um, I think I think the sport thing as well. I mean, yeah. people are surprised when you know when I say that I'm a, a bit of you know I'm going to watch the rugby league on the weekend. People sort of oh, really. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I don't know. So how did your mum and dad meet then? Your mum uh, no, Mum came here when she was four, so ah, she grew up here. Right. Yeah, they moved okay. straight into Fairfield West, and my dad had been born there as well. So yeah, right. they met. Um, yeah, they met. Um, yeah, when they were sort of in their teens. Oh, nice. Okay, so you've sort of uh, gone here a little bit, but why WSU? Because before WSU, um, you're in the the union. Was there anything in between? No. Mm. So straight uh, to Western. Um, so, yeah, I'd been 16 years in the union in different roles and um, I was in the state branch and then moved into the national office. So I was the national assistant secretary at the mm-hmm. time um, that I left. Um, but we'd had a challenging couple of years. There'd been some corruption um, mm. in the union, which had been um, pretty devastating and uh, had been a really tough period where we you know, had to work closely with the authorities to mm-hmm. kind of get to the bottom of it and um you know I, I, it was it was it was a really tough period I think um plus you know my marriage had broken down the couple mm-hmm. of years before and I had young kids and we'd re- we'd relocated to Western Sydney um because I'd lived for a short time um in the Sutherland Shire oh, right. when uh, when my kids were very little um so yeah so I was looking for something a bit closer to home um was the first mm-hmm. thing um, and yeah, as I said before, always looking for something, you know, where I felt like I was giving back and, um, you know, so Western was kind of right at the top of the list and, um, yeah, so I started, uh, in 2012 mm-hmm. in a, um, a policy officer role. Yeah, um, right. yeah, so it was just kind of a couple of years after I'd finished the Masters of Public Policy and so I thought that's kind of a nice kind of pivot into, into something different. Um, yeah, and I worked um, in the Chancellery um, at the time. Um, uh, some folks that are still at the university started around the same time as me, um, Andy Marks oh, yeah. um, and Nayantara Pothan. We all sort of worked together in, in a unit there and we were just working on, yeah, higher ed policy and kind of advising the senior executive around some of the changes that were happening there. So, yeah, it was a... It was a it was kind of a, a nice opportunity for me to find something that yeah, I think spoke to my kind of interests and um, and skills um, and was, yeah, um, a little bit closer to home and, yeah, the attraction of Western in terms of what it delivers, mm. I think, for our communities. To, yeah. yeah, I think was um, it, it was it was just a winner for me. And when did you venture into the uh, services around students? So it took um, a little bit longer. So I, I, uh, after that role, I moved into finance and resources and I worked um, as a sort of um, a senior strategy and project officer then for the, the CFO um, for a couple of years um, and did a lot of kind of project work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, then an opportunity came up um, to come and move to the student experience office. And uh, I think at that stage, because again, the, you know, the, fi- the finance just it wasn't it wasn't a vibe, as my <laughs> daughter would say. Um, you know, it was uh, it was great and it was interesting. And you know, we we're working on things like the Westmead redevelopment. And it was kind of the start of Western growth, and it was all it was all interesting. But it wasn't kind of where my passion was, I guess. So um, Nicole Mancini would be devastated oh, right now. <laughs> the, account- the inner accountant <laughs> just sharing that. Hi, Nicole. <laughs> but um, so I had an opportunity, um, yeah, to come across and uh, took a role, yeah, working with uh, Michael Burgess, who was new at that stage as the Chief Student Experience Officer and started working in student experience and, yeah, kind of worked my way through there and, yeah, had a couple of roles, I guess, between that and, and where I am now. But um, really, I guess, the moving into a management role in, in services was um yeah came about with shared services and sort of moved into um a role there which uh yeah took on the um student experience administration and inquiries team which was the kind of school-based admin support Mm. team as a part of the shared services yeah and you haven't looked back do you love the student um i guess focused services now yeah Yeah. i do i mean i think you know 
we have such a fantastic cohort of students who just demonstrate such grit and resilience and you know I think probably the best part of my job is getting to participate in graduations mm. um, every now and again and uh, you know um, you know get the official role as the mace bearer which is kind of a little bit of pomp but you know just <laughs> being able to sit up there on the stage and watch everybody cross and just the pride you know um, mm. and the joy in the audience you know and um, the cheering and just so much hope and yeah uh, it's it's just really fabulous. So, and I think, and, and you know, it's not just that; it's what people have achieved. But then thinking what they might go on to after mm. that, you know, I think just to so start, much, yeah. yeah. So I think you know what we do. We we really we change lives. You know, I think, mm. and and we do. We we really impact our communities. So it's um yeah, it's really wonderful to be involved with. And I think the other thing that's so fantastic is that it's such a shared sense of mission. Mm. You know, at Western, and you know you. Yeah, everybody you talk to about why they're at Western, I mean, there's a very strong sense of, you know, the mission and the purpose and what yep. we do and the connection to students. And, uh, you know, that really drives people and that's, you know, that's it's great. It's very much um, the common theme we've been getting from our guests in this, that's for sure. It's a good reminder for everyone too, you know, sometimes when you get down, bogged down in the churn, you know, there's that, if you can see that higher level and that connection, it's a good reminder. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, so you are a member of our program advisory group. Thank you for that. Um, so you, pro- I'm going to test you now. <laughs> what do you know about our program? Uh, well, I mean, I think I don't get to en- as many of your meetings as I should. <laughs> We've got our attendance role here now. <laughs> they are, thankfully, there's no attendance. Um, but uh, look, I mean, I know, y- you know, I think you guys are doing great work in, in terms of promoting, I think, a service culture and, um, you know, a service framework and service governance and and, and service excellence, you know, mm. and I think... I think where we've got such a long way to go, but we've also come a long way. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think we're all on a journey in terms of our um, the maturity of our, our services. Uh, but I think what your team provides is, um, yeah, some tools, um, framework mm. and guidance, you know, for us to really help to mature our services. Yes, we are working on lots of things, but soon to be launched now, and you would have seen it last tag, Program Advisory Group, sorry, Elise, um, is our um, language guide. So we've just sent that off to um, Professor Pollock to hopefully launch very soon just to um, align people in a, a service language. The principles are in there, which are already service excellence principles. So we're very um, you know, keen to get that out. And Elise is doing some cool little videos I'm attached to them. Yeah. yeah Hopefully so everyone thinks they're cool. <laughs> well, at least does. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do too. Um, yeah, so no, thank you for your knowledge of the program. But um, I, I'm around your service area now in particular, so we'll, uh, student retention and success, big portfolio. Um, but I'm I, just sharing, you know, I, we, I, I do get out and talk to a lot of people um, and, you know, meet regularly with school managers and um, operational people, I guess, on the ground. But there's been seems to be a a really um, positive vibe around your area now, Nat. And I think there's been some real, um, I don't know, change and you know um, the the posit- positivity and the ad- like. Is there a culture piece that you've been working on? Because I think you know, um, I think your area's matured over yeah. the last year or two. Yeah, thank you. I mean. Uh, absolutely there's been a conscious effort to work on culture um and it's something that uh you know michael was very strong on and i think we've kind of taken um and run with um and i have to kind of give a shout out to rebecca mcculloch um in our team who we kind of uh you know refer to as the culture queen Uh, (laughs) but she has an absolute passion and is an absolute driving force and whenever we get too busy with the busy things Mm. um you know beck is kind of there with good culture and um you know and and she kind of reminds us all to do all the really important things you know so shout outs for the great work that the team does and you know Mm. making sure we you know organize the morning teas and you know those sorts of things and the social things so she you know took a bunch of the leadership she's arranged for the leadership group to co-work once a month 
So our whole leadership team get together on one campus and we work in a big collaborative learning space for the day. And, uh, you know, we all come and go with meetings, but it just allows that opportunity for those kind of casual conversations, which just wouldn't happen otherwise. And I think happen even less so now post-COVID because I think we're kind of in this hybrid, you know, home office, work from home, plus our multi, at our multi-campus dimension to that. Everybody's coming and going and we're all kind of often like ships in the night and you run from one meeting to the next and you don't get to ask about the kids or the, you know, how your team went on the weekend or whatever. You don't get to have those conversations. So giving us the opportunity to do that. So, so we've been working really hard on it. We sort of started with the leadership team and we're kind of working our way through now. Um, but really it's about kind of trying to empower our teams. Mm. Um, I think that's been the biggest change. Um, and we kind of started it with a values-based approach. So we, we, through a consultative kind of process, we arrived at some values for the student experience office as it was then. And they've kind of subsequently been re-endorsed and confirmed as we became student experience and marketing. And, you know, the first and the kind of central value is keeping the student at the heart of everything, Mm. keep the student at the heart of everything. And so that kind of motivates us and drives the work that we do all the time. And I think, um, you know, we have other values about being curious and challenging the status quo and being transparent, um, being humble, supportive Mm. and kind. Um, And so, you know, we tend to kind of align our activities to those values and we call out behaviours that are in alignment or not in alignment with those values and we kind of um, try to reward staff as well when they're demonstrating those values. So I think that's been a big change, Um, you know, and I I think also we have have a really great leadership team, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's, there's a, there's a lot of fantastic people who I think have been working really hard to make sure that their teams have what they need to be able to do their job. Uh, and if they don't or they see something not working, to be able to say it. Yeah. You know, and I think that that wasn't the culture for yes. some time. Um, and, you know, my observation is that in parts of, um, you know, parts of, of the business there was a kind of a, sometimes a computer says no, kind of, you know, no, we don't do that. That's mm. not what we do. Um, and I think that really has changed and the team now um, very much focused on what's important for the student will try and, you know, do what they can do to improve the student experience and improve the outcome for students. So I think mm. that's kind of been at the heart of it. Um, but it's been a really, um, yeah, concerted effort. Mm. Um, we it's kind noticeable. Of, yeah, we've got culture, we call them our culture champions, you oh, know, right. who um, across all teams and... You know, so they um, they get together and meet together, but they also then, you know, plan activities and events within their teams. Um, yeah, just to kind of provide those opportunities for people to have those conversations um, mm. that are not just work all the time. Yeah, that's, bril- that's a brilliant example. Um, in our toolkit, as you would have seen in the program advisory group, one of the dimensions where a service area can improve is the alignment of people. Mm. And that's a really great case study or an example of aligning your people to you know I guess um, to put the user needs at the forefront um, which is another kind of section of of the service life cycle you know Um, so that's an excellent example yeah and and you know it takes time um, and you know our friends over at GRS for example are probably 12 months into a 24 month you know that's how long it takes I think to really embed the new way of working and you know hats off to you Nat that's a brilliant example um, and you know when you start hearing people talk about the positive change then you know you've you know made a difference there but tell us how you managed the transition from your student inquiries administration teams into the student services hub how how did you manage that because that was a big change and you know um, it meant taking people out of schools which is often tricky but from all I've heard it's working quite well. Yeah look I mean I think um, we had been thinking about it for some time because I think the outposted model provided us with a lot of challenges when we had particularly if we had schools that had um, you know multiple campuses and we uh, had limited team members it meant that you'd just have one person sick and you'd have to to close a counter and it just wasn't great from a service experience. So 
um, it was on our agenda to kind of fix it. And we took the opportunity with the refurbishment of the hub at Parramatta South to kind of trial um, a consolidation um, into the hub there. And I think that just was such an overwhelming success in that you had sort of five or six um, SEAE, we'll call them Mm -hmm. just for the sake of the argument, but student experience staff who had been sitting in their various school locations across the campus at Parramatta who came together into the hub and suddenly kind of felt like they were part of something and part of a team, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I think because I think to differing extents, they had maybe felt like they were a little bit connected to their schools. But, you know, that that was that was, uh, I think, different for different people. So they came together and I think that worked really well. And so we kind of then had a view that we would roll that out as that became uh, possible. And I think kind of COVID probably helped as well because I think, you know, the way our teams managed to support students and their other stakeholders through COVID, you know, you know that what the, what it was like at the beginning. But, I mean, you know, we had only ever been on campus in terms of Student Services Hub. Like we had face-to-face mm-hmm. and we had phones and emails and they all worked from desktop computers. Nobody had laptops. So we had to kind of, in a matter of two weeks, deploy laptops for everybody, headsets, VPNs, mm. so that they could, you know, do their work and support our students from home. And uh, they did that and they did that with such a kind of, oh, I don't know, just a just a sense of, you know, commitment and mm-hmm. to the challenge and to meeting the challenge I think that was um, that was just fantastic so um, you know I think that also showed and it showed our colleagues in the schools too that you know it didn't really matter where the support was sitting the support was still there um, and so yeah so I think that has helped a lot um, I think um, you know it's 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 an evolution though you know and I think we're mm-hmm. still working um, on you know making sure that they are all feeling part of the same team. Um, but I think, you know, the way it worked was we kind of always had, they were always providing kind of a second tier level of, you know, tier two kind of service. Um, so it's kind of just normalising that now. Um, but I think there are still lots of opportunities for us to kind of look at improving processes. I think that was the first thing we did was lots of um, uh, service kind of consolidation in terms of, yeah, mm. where there were lots of different things across different schools, just standardising. Right, so we'd standardise, service standardisation was kind of the first step and then a bit of service optimisation but I still think there's a lot more we can do in that space and, you know, systems are helping with that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Western Now, um, for instance, has helped uh, a lot Um, and so, you know, we kind of um, constantly looking for opportunities to to improve. Um, You know, we recently this year moved to new contact centre management system, Genesis, which has been a really, um, you know, well-run implementation and project and uh you know is delivering some real efficiencies for us um you know we've we've got through that many extra calls um emails this year it's it's been phenomenal so yeah Yeah. you know i think that that helps when we can provide good systems you know systems that work um because you know there were there were I think when I started in this, you know, I remember the story of someone saying that they, you know, a student services hub officer had to log into 13 different systems at the start Mm. of a shift. Um, And, you know, so, you know, I think there's lots of ways we've kind of been able to reduce some of that friction and just make make life a bit easier, which makes it easier for Mm. you to provide a good quality service as well. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, I really like the... the, um, standardization aspect which is one of our service excellence principles um uh, and you know i mean the broader picture here in school support services there there's a similar feel and similar challenges now in other functions around lacking the economy of scale just as your seaes were were out there you know you've um you've got um one governance and compliance officer in, in one or two schools um, and they go on leave and it's a big hole, just as you were saying. So it's, I think, um, your example of um, having, um, I guess, numbers and that critical mass is just so important to to build, a, I guess, a resilience and a robust service, um, learn from each other, um, yeah, more opportunities. But, yeah, it's a... It's it, it was a big change, but I think you know you've come through the other side. Technology helps. We've had a demo on Genesis. It was pretty cool. 
It is. It's mm. great. And I think, you know, there are so many opportunities there, you know, artificial mm. intelligence, you know, we're sort of looking at predictive engagement and, you know, um, it, it actually it amazes me that our phone um, calls are going up year on year. Like I look at my daughter who's 17, like she would rather stick a pin in her eye than call someone yeah. on the phone about something, right? So, but we have young people calling us, you know, um, yeah, which is quite, again, it's off trend. But anyway, um, they do, but maybe that's a sign of sometimes how hard it is to, to get the answer they need that they'll resort to calling us on the phone but there's a lot we can do we're looking at um, optimizing the website this year as well which I think is long overdue um, you know to sort of make that a more seamless experience and because as much as we can we want to set students up so that they can support themselves ideally you know um, and have good information and good knowledge so that they can kind of follow the links and get to where they need to without kind of finding themselves in a loop Um, our systems are complex, you know, we're not unique, you know, it's kind of across the board, but they are very complex. Um, you know, you talked about acronyms before, you know, we had a new starter and someone sent across, th- there is there is an 18-page document that floats around the university with all the different <laughs> acronyms, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of wild. So um, I think as much as we can simplify that for our students and kind of, yeah, just, just step it out for them, then, yeah, mm. the better question which is um a a little bit off track but students are your primary user group um do you directly seek feedback from them and and if so how do you engage that feedback to improve your service design yeah so we do um genesis is giving us some much better opportunities for doing that and so we're just um i think we were testing we may have deployed but we're, we're building into that you know so that at the end of phone calls we can ask you to stay on the line and provide us with feedback we didn't have that capability um, yeah. with the old QMaster system um, but we always sought feedback um, in emails uh, but again that would kind of rep- require you to reply at the end yeah. of an email exchange and provide feedback um, and face to face we also do it um, we send text messages um, so we do, um, we're looking at more ways to do that. We also do it, um, we have an annual reflection survey where we actually ask students as well. Um, we send that to the whole student body um, and we ask them about their experiences and, and services is one of the things we ask them about. So we, we explicitly ask them about our services. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we're constantly seeking it. Um, the team monitor it mm. and, and, you know, and act on it as well. Um uh, both in terms of you know positive feedback, and I'll often get it sent up. You know oh, when when good. there's really you know and, and some wonderful kind of testimonials and students saying you know if not for the help of X on yeah. this day I wouldn't have been able to you know so great great feedback and they'll feed that up and we can make sure that's recognised. Um, but yeah, whenever there's areas of development or where people need you know um, further support, we make sure we offer that as well. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant. It's so important to recognise the excellent service when it happens as well. We're quick to identify problems, you know. So we're, we're trying to foster that in the work we do as well. Okay, more generally now, service, not just in your area but across WSU. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think we can improve it? I mean, I think... Collaboration is probably the key. I mean, I think that's the area that's probably the hardest to do because um, as much as we try not to be, we are quite siloed. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, um, also policy is, I think, you know, Mm. um, problematic. And we kind of, um, I think, use it as a bit of a... um, you know, a crutch sometimes and sort of, you know, fall back, oh, that's the policy says, Mm. you know, whereas I think we constantly need to be challenging, you know, can we change the policy? Yeah. Why? You know, (laughs) why? Um, Can we change that? Is that the best way? Um, So I think, yeah, you know, trying to simplify, but I think collaboration really is the key, working together, identifying those opportunities for improvement, having the, um, you know, being able and, and feeling comfortable to raise them and not in, the sense of it being a criticism but in terms of it being mm. an improvement opportunity um, and then yeah. kind of working together to to deliver it. Mm. Um, I think that's probably the biggest opportunity. I think there are lots of those. Yeah, that's a big culture piece. Um, being able to just have those open conversations about uh, service and um, the service experience and 
discussing, you know, solutions to it just directly and transparently and constructively. Um, It does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it, you know, to to normalise that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it happens, but it's probably not the not the norm. Yeah, and I think that's where we need to get to. So you know, um, you know, I've kind of always taken a view that you know, my door's open. Like, come to me if there's an issue. You know, and and so you know, occasionally that happens, but but sometimes it happens, and there's a level of frustration that you kind of think, well, gosh, you know, why didn't you why didn't you raise it before? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think sometimes people. Um, do, you know, just sit on things, stew on things, you know, internalise things. Um, whereas I think whenever we see an opportunity, particularly if it's impacting, you know, student experience, um, we, we just have to be open enough to raise it mm. and address it. Mm. We've been, I've been doing some work on um, on the toolkit around, I'm just reflecting on your self, your student's self-help um, comment before. And... Um, when I've been researching on inquiries management and um, self-help type, the tier zero inquiries, let's say, um, and providing advice in the toolkit around services considering a tiering uh, approach, uh, the, you know, best practice, um, the research states that around sort of 70, 75, let's say between 70 and 80% of inquiries should should be able to be answered by tier zero. Um self-help, policy, you know, knowledge, whatever it might be, uh, websites, which is interesting. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but it's an interesting sort of thing to reflect on, um, which would lessen your face-to-face, you know, or escalation of inquiries, that sort of thing. But, yeah, what Look, do you I think, think our preliminary kind of work in this space sort of says that we need to do so the website refresh is yep. really important because you have to have that kind of clear information there to be able to kind of draw from and for, particularly if you're using a bot or anything like that it has to be very clear for mm. it to draw from um, and unfortunately the way our website has been built is you know you've got thousands of users putting things in lots of different places so you'll have things in multiple places and then it gets updated in one spot and not Mm. the other and so you've got conflicting information so you know we've got to sort that out but also simplification like you know people need to know what they're asking for you Mm. know or you need to be able to kind of clearly give them options in terms of what they're asking for and I think sometimes um yeah there's there's a there's a I think I feel like there's a big role for simplifying the Mm. language we use and the kind of policy approach and you know, a good example is kind of for students around the kind of disruption to studies, special consideration. It's called different things in different places and different, yep. you know, we change the name and in other institutions it's called different things. And um, so, you know, and, and then there's requests for extension and that's in a different place. Yeah. And, you know, so f- for them I think we have to ideally, I, although we have multiple systems and multiple processes and policies, for them the view should be kind of, Right, so there should be one single pane where they can go and they can ask a question, and and it just directs them to the place without them having to go and find the place. Um, so you know, I think there are a few projects underway, um, which I think will help to get us there. But it is a very kind of complex and cluttered. Natalie, I have a solution. <laughs> we're making a service catalogue. Yeah, well, that will help a lot. Yeah. Um, so we're kicking off with five service areas this side of Christmas close down. We have a prototype. We've got a really great example that we found of Griffith University human-centred design approach. So, you know, if a student comes and says, um, I can't hand in an assessment, is that if that's the question, that that's what is there, you know, um, assessment help or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it's it's really user-friendly, the Griffith one, and we're, we're going to roll that out. Um, we're building it. It will be interesting, but, um, yeah, that could help you almost categorise um, nicely from the user perspective. Yeah. So I'll reach out to you. Very good. (laughs) Okay. Um. There's our magical question. Thank you, Elise. Um, I had to tap her on the shoulder for (laughs) our... If you had a magic service wand... Uh, what is one thing you would do to help improve the user experience at WSU? Mm, one thing is hard. Um, mm. 
I actually popped this on our Viva Engage chat this morning to sort of get some feedback from the team and I'll be interested to see what their top priorities are. But look, I think there's lots of things. I've talked about simplification, you know, I've talked about breaking down silos and collaboration, but I think, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's kind of a technical tool, but to, to your view about the service catalogue mm. from the student view, for me, it's that having that 360 degree view of the student. So it's like a CRM piece, which, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the holy grail. Um, yep. And uh, so... CRM is customer... Relationship management. That's it. Yep. So, yeah. So having that kind of, yeah, having the you know, all their student record data, their behavioural data, their demographic data. You know, so you can so you can personalise, so yep. you can actually understand from a retention perspective, you can actually understand are they accessing views? Have they handed in their first assignment? Mm. Are they attending classes? Like if we had that data, um, there's so much more we could do to support mm. our students and to intervene in a timely way to make sure that they succeed. So for me that's kind of the that's the game changer. That's is that on piece. our DX um, digital acceleration? It is. Yeah. It is. Okay. It's, and it's it's a big it's a it's mm. be a big project uh, because I think at the moment the university has something like six discrete CRMs. Right. It may even be more. But you know, so I mean, it's kind of but it, it, it's critical that we have yeah. an institution wide CRM. So that's the challenge. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're up to Brilliant. it. Yeah, that would be a game changer. And last question, now. This has been fun, but. Have to end it at some point. What advice do you give us as a service reimagined program that would help us on our service transformation journey? Look, I think just do more of what you're doing. I mean, I think you know, I think this podcast is a great initiative. Um, I think um, you know anything that we can do to kind of move. Um, away I guess from the kind of the language of you know shared services and kind of the you know the baggage that sits with that yeah to to a more forward-looking you know view about what it is that we can create um you know by collaborating together in terms of you know a really fantastic service culture and and one that you know potentially can differentiate us from other um other universities in the sector so I think you know I think just keep doing the things you're doing I think you know doing a good job thank you natalie that's lovely and we thank you for your time today and and um hope you stay cool in the the very hot day that we have outside <laughs> thank you thanks for having me it's thanks Nat. thanks for listening to today's episode if you have any questions please feel free to visit our yammer page or email the team at service at westernsydney.edu.au If you liked today's episode, please consider sharing it with a colleague to get the word out about our podcast and program.